Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're continuing our series this week called Significant Texts from the Ancient Near East. And Chris and Mary are going to be talking about the Misha Stele and its importance for biblical scholarship and some of the ways that you can grapple with that text. And again, this series is designed to help you learn how to understand and uh, grapple with some of the important texts from the ancient Near East and how they can shed light on the biblical text. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this show and to all of you who have contributed regularly to the podcast. We really appreciate you. Enjoy the episode. Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Biblical World Podcast. My name is Mary Buck, and I'm joined by Chris McKinney, my fellow co-host. And we are continuing our series about texts of the ancient Near East. Um, Last uh, time that you, hopefully you listened in, listened in, uh, we covered kind of an intro to the text of the ancient world and some of the the languages um, and media that are used. And this time we want to zoom into one of the most famous texts from the ancient world, the Mesha Stele, or you might've heard it called the Moabite Stone. Um, if you've been to the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, you might've seen it or seen an example of it. Um, and it's been really very important for biblical studies for quite a long time after it was uh, discovered in the 1800s. And um, we're excited to share more about the text with you. I think Chris is going to lead us in sort of a historical overview of its discovery and the archaeology around it. Um, we'll be talking about the text itself. We'll, we'll share with you a translation and really get into kind of its importance for the biblical narrative and an understanding the Iron Age. Um, Chris, would love to hear, hear from you on this one. It's so good to be back talking about this, um, this, this series that we're doing. Uh, we took a bit of a hiatus, and I'm really excited to get back into some of the, the best texts that tell us about the, the biblical world outside of the Bible itself, of course. And uh, we've really chosen um, one of the most important ones, as you indicated. In fact, I would even go so far as to say... Don't do it. That Don't do the, it. <laughs> <laughs> that the Meshastili is in some ways the closest we can get to a Moabite Bible. In other words, uh, when we when we approach the story of ancient Israel and Judah, um, you know most of the most of the books of Samuel and Kings, and if you want to add on Judges and Joshua to that, and the prophets, they're written from Israel's perspective and, and Judah's perspective, especially Judah for the historical books. And so we have a, an abundant amount of, of material about them. Now, of, of course, you have to understand its background and you have to understand its geography and archaeology. But the fact is, with as much, we, we, we want to know more, but we know a lot about the, the world of ancient Israel and the world of ancient Judah in particular. Um, but we don't have comparable texts for most of their neighbors uh, that were likely the same kind of nation states that that existed. And we're talking about such nations as the Philistine city-states like Gath, uh, which for most of its history, Telesafi was the biggest city in the vicinity of 
of, of Judah. I mean, we're just a massive, massive site that would dwarf Jerusalem. And we don't know virtually anything about the Philistines, whether we're talking about Gath or its, or its other sites, from themselves. We have texts about, the, um, about them from, in the Bible, of course. We have texts about them from the Assyrians uh, when they came and uh, destroyed many of these sites and made them pay tribute. We have some texts even later than this uh, from the, the Babylonians and so on. And the same is really true if we go across the board. If we talk about the Phoenicians, if we talk about the Edomites, if we talk about the Ammonites, if we talk about, in many ways, the Arameans, um, there are here and there pieces uh, that we that we have information of, you know, in different places. But in general, we we don't have nearly as much um, as we do with the Bible, not even close. But the one uh, unique example is with, with is with Moab, uh, because we do have this relatively lengthy uh, stele, this monumental stone that was set up as a as a kind of commemorative, memorialized uh, set of victories won by Mesha, king of Moab, in the middle of the ninth century, that at least gives us uh, some historical, as well as geographical, as well as even theological elements that, that not only present Moab's take on the things that happened to them, but the things they did, but also even make mention of Israel and Judah. Uh, nations that were to their west. And so we get from their perspective just how they would have saw themselves. Um, and, and so in, in that sense, the Mesha Stele um, is really unsurpassed, in my opinion, as a contemporary Old Testament slash Hebrew Bible Iron Age text to compare to um, with, with ancient Israel. Now, of course, uh, if, if we're doing a top 10 list, it's always going to be in competition with other ones, such as the Tel Dan inscription, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point. Um, and the interesting thing is, is it dates perhaps to the very same year. Uh, some people even suggest that both of these should be dated to the year, uh, right around 841 BC or so. Um, now, there's some, some pushback on that, particularly with regard to the Meshistili as being perhaps a little bit later. But the fact is, is that they date to the mid, to a little bit after the mid-9th century, and they both have a lot of really interesting similarities, such as uh, references to biblical kings by name, um, such as Omri, the king of, uh, king of Israel, and even uh, perhaps, as we'll see, references for the very first time outside of the Bible to the house of David, or Beit David as a dynastic name. And so just in point one, if you will, is that the Meshastili slash Moab stone is extremely important for uh, biblical studies, uh, for the study of the Old Testament, for the study of Moab, uh, and really just in general for, for the study of ancient Israel. Uh, point number two is actually, in my opinion, more fun, because that has to do with the discovery of the Meshastili and for that, we have to uh, go back to the latter part of the 19th century. We have to place ourselves uh, right around the time um, of uh, where we have such greats as Edward Robinson and the Survey of Western Palestine in this region, a place that has been characterized as uh, digging for God and country. Um, when the great European powers of 
of, of, of Great Britain and France and Germany and, and even to, to some extent um, having America also over there uh, sought to really understand the land for two main purposes. Uh, one for the glory of it and the desire to know more about the, the biblical world, which was just being discovered. Uh, but two, with the knowledge that that Ottoman Empire uh, was very sick, as the saying goes, the sick man of Europe. And eventually, of course, this would be divided up in World War, uh, in World War I as the Ottoman Empire basically imploded with its alliance with, uh, with Germany. And so this is a, a big piece of that puzzle. And so we come to a really interesting character in the uh, year of, eight, of, of 1868, just three years after the close of the Civil War. And maybe, we inter- go Chris, ahead. can I quickly just inter- sure. in, interject before we jump in? I, I think go it's ahead. worthwhile mentioning just in the 1800s, kind of the, the landscape, right? You mentioned the Ottoman Empire and that it was kind of on the decline, all of those things. But it's also a part of a, a really um, interesting and important cultural shift in Europe itself. And it's part of kind of this oriental orientalism movement where there was a great deal of interest in the, in the Middle East and in Arab cultures in ancient cultures, et cetera. Um, and we see this, it permeated culture. So, um, there was like really interesting, <laughs> they brought a giraffe into a, a zoo at Schönbrunn in Austria, and it spun this huge, uh, rage around giraffes. There was like giraffe perfume and giraffe dresses and all of these other things. It's part of this movement where um, people were very interested in the ancient world and in the Middle East and and bringing that culture to them and they're they're creating Chinese tea gardens and they're you know they're every the hundred thousand and one Arabian nights gets published like it's part of this big cultural movement and so part of that is there was a lot of funding to send researchers to the Middle East right they're at this exact same time they're finding Ashurbanipal's library right and so this um, we can't quite describe it in the same way, right? Today, we're kind of like, oh yeah, Moabite stone, something new gets found, okay, right? It wasn't all just about the Bible. They were really excited about both the Bible and the Middle East. And when the Moabite stone was found at the end of the 1800s, it had this dramatic effect on culture. It was published in the, in the Times. People were reading it. They were excited about it. They're talking about it. Um, and it creates this enormous splash at the end of the 1800s because it's part of this cultural movement. And I more just set the stage there so that we get a sense of, culture in um, Europe was really ripe for uh, bringing this in um, with excitement, right? Receiving this with excitement. So it's a little bit different than today, I would say. But continue on. I'm excited to hear more about the Yeah, discovery. no, that's 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 really a great point. And I, I'd add another element to that related to our first character, uh, Friedrich Klein. He is a fascinating character. He was uh, apparently French-born, but then became a German citizen, but then was Anglican. Uh, so you really have the, the full main three powers of the European world at that time in this one guy, Friedrich Klein. He was also a missionary, which is another part of this, um, th- this, this thing that you just described. It wasn't just to capture the, the culture that was, that was out there. It was also um, evangelizing much of the, uh, much of the, the uh, Orient, of what was then called the Orient, and then going to places like in Palestine, which was this was part of, uh, to to missionize them. Of course, this is when we have in Jerusalem such missions as what become later known as Christ Church. It's around this time frame that we have the Garden Tomb, um, and so there's many examples of this 
which is also an interesting part because um, this is also kind of an element of how the Ottoman uh, Empire was slowly decaying because before they wouldn't allow this. And so it's really the opening up of, of, of the Ottoman Empire itself to much of this. But in any case, in August of, of, of 1868, Klein was informed as he was in the region, and here we need to really think of this area of Transjordan, um, which is central Transjordan, uh, just opposite of the, the Dead Sea, uh, really as a, a, a wild land. I mean, it is, um, it is like, think of the craziest um, Western that you've seen, uh, gold rush times, uh, just total lawlessness. Um, out on the east. Even the Ottomans would not want to come in this area. When they did, they faced extreme uh, violence uh, by, the local, uh, by the local tribes. And that's another interesting aspect of this because it probably, in some ways, uh, is a kind of picture, what archaeologists sometimes consider ethnography, of the types of great, big, powerful tribes that lived, lived there throughout history, including in the biblical era. Uh, such as Mesha, which we'll, which we'll talk about a little bit later. In any case, he was, um, he was notified that at this place called Tel Diban, which is which would, would already be known as the location of Dibon, uh, which is a site that had been mentioned in the Bible, uh, that there was this very large uh, stele. Uh, there. He was traveling with a, a friend of his, a guy named Zatam, who was uh, the son of the sheikh of this really powerful tribe called the B'nai Sakir. These were the most powerful tribe in Transjordan at the time. And so he, he comes with a bit of protection with him. Uh, he's traveling with you, which you might all consider to be a prince. He, he approached the stone um, and he made a sketch of it, uh, which we uh, which we, we have actually uh, uh, a sketch of this uh, that was that was eventually given to uh, Julius Henry Peterman, who at the time was a German Prussian council in Jerusalem. He was also, as, as Mary alluded to, not just interested in politics, he was also an Orientalist. He himself was interested in archaeology, history, but is also very much connected with the politics of what was happening at the time. And so here we get a, a kind of a a revelation of where Klein's real alliance lies. It's with, with Germany, not the Anglicans and not the French. He takes it to the Prussian council. And he, his hope was, is that with this sketch, the German government could very quickly um, purchase the stone. They could, they could give just, just enough money to, to take it back with them uh, to Germany. And so that's where things stood in September of 1868 in the fall of, in the fall of that year. Uh, over the course of this, as things uh, as things do, there's these there's these negotiations uh, that take place, and eventually the British, the French, as well as the Germans, find out about the stone. Word gets around, and uh, the 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 price for the stone begins to increase uh, for the those the, the Bedouin who are at Dibon to try and sell it. Um, now, if we were faced with uh, the opportunity to buy the Mesha Steely for $4,000 today, which is roughly about what it would have cost according to that currency, we would have no trouble um, uh, trying to, to buy it for that price. Eventually, though, um, in some, at some point in 1869, Peterman would try another intermediary. He actually would use uh, what appears to have been a teacher from the southern part of Jerusalem. His guy's name is Sabah Kawar. And he went and they finally reached an agreement to sell the Mesha Steely. What I've said is the most important artifact for something like 
$480. I mean, it's, it's just uh, really, really insane. Well, as things, uh, as they made the agreement and they, they, they shook hands on it and were in the process of, uh, of shipping it, word comes in November uh, of, of 1869 that the shake of another group in the area uh, refuses to allow the stone to be shipped through their territory. And so just to, just to catch us up, the Prussians and the, uh, Bini, uh, the Bini Hamidi tribe who have the stone, they have made an agreement. They've sold the Mesha Steely, which would become later known as the Mesha Steely, for $480, but they can't transport it from Dubon to Jerusalem because there's another tribe standing in their way saying, you can't go through our land. Uh, now, it, it, does that sound like does it, that sound like anything from the Bible? It brings up um, well. Oh well, now you're saying Bible, but I was going to say it sounds a lot like Lawrence of Arabia, right? So the yeah, the yes. warring tribes, and you think about kind of the Bedouin mindset, right? The clear territories, etc. But it also sounds like the Israelites passing through the Transjordan. Um, yes, I mean, it, and it and it's exactly in the same spot. I mean, when we talk about the Israelites going through when they come to, Mo, to, to, to Moab, they say, you can't go through our land. And, and they say, God says, you can't go that way, but you can go this direction. And they eventually encounter a tribe which isn't related to Abraham some way. So of course they're able to kill them and proceed forward. But it's, this, it's so interesting that you have this uh, same dynamic uh, that the land often doesn't, uh, doesn't change. Well, with this major setback, we get to what would become the main character of this whole story. Uh, and it's a guy pe most people have heard of if they've heard of this story. And that is the story of, of Charles uh, Claremont Gonneau, famous uh, archeologist, famous scholar. Uh, at this point, he is all of 23 years old. Aw, that's uh, so cute. Yeah, I mean, he's a young guy and he is ruthless already <laughs> a ruthless uh, a ruthless guy he's going to send his friend uh, a guy named Salim Al-Kari to Dubon to get more intelligence about this artifact uh, there's a lot of doubt not, not not there's been no scholars that have really looked at it it's just word of mouth at this point and we actually have that sketch uh, from 1869, uh, which which actually shows the shape of the uh, the shape of the stele uh, and and includes some words. Unfortunately, um, Alcari did not really give a transcription. He gave a very strange uh, selection where he chose one letter over here and one letter over there, and it was uh, virtually undecipherable by Claremont Gonneau. And once he had uh, later on the the inscription itself. He saw the mistakes that uh, Akari had made, but nevertheless, the shape of the of the the letters told him that he was looking at something very ancient, something that he thought to be Hebrew or Phoenician. And so, with that in hand, he would uh, continue his delegations. He would send yet another local uh, Arab man uh, who would be one of the real heroes of this story, a guy named Yakub Kar Karavaka to Dibon, and his job was to make a paper squeeze uh, out of paper mache, which is something that was uh, very common at the time, where you would take a paper mache, uh, it would be wet, you'd place it on an inscription, and then you would have the inscription in reverse uh, once, once it was removed. But this is where it, uh, this, this is where the, you know, the really story comes to a head, because as they were there, um, Yakub Karavaka was there, there is this argument that's going on between these two tribes, Kowar 
and Hamidi um, over who they're going to sell it to, how much it should be sold for. Um, and there's all this back and forth. And as that's happening, a major fight breaks out between the Bedouin. Uh, Karavak himself was even wounded in the, in the process. And if it wasn't for his uh, colleague, a guy known to us as Sheikh Jamal, uh, he jumped down to where the uh, office horse, to where the Stella was, and quickly in, uh, in seven smooth motions, tore off the paper mache squeeze off of the, the Meshastili, stuffed it in his saddlebags, and just like, you know, Clint Eastwood and John Wayne, uh, rode to the, literally to the border. Um, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a Western, this would be, you know, go for the Rio Grande. Here, they were going for the Jordan River, uh, making their way back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and that's how uh, we ended up with how, how the West eventually ends up with the, the paper mache squeeze, uh, which uh, will also figure into the story later on. And so that's what we might call the prologue to the story. That's really what, 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 what ends up happening. But as, as things are going on, and this is the part of the story that um, is usually collapsed together, because with this in hand, now they really understand that this is something that is very important. Wait, this is not just... Go ahead. One addition. Doesn't he get a spear in the leg while he's riding away? I feel like yeah, that's something really like that. important. I mean, that's in the original article from the 1800s. So I feel like it's always important to know. Yeah, he gets. That well, I, I said he was wounded by a spear. He, he was wounded by a spear. I mean, yeah, it's he, in he, the leg. He's, you know, riding away. I just he's bleeding like out. He's, he's you know, bleeding he make, out. He barely makes it. He puts it. a tourniquet on it. You know, I mean, it, <laughs> this really should be made into a movie. I mean, it, it really should. Yeah, you and uh, I would what, watch that, and no one else. But still, well, yes, we would enjoy yeah. it. We would enjoy it. We would. We would. Um, well, what normally gets kind of telescoped together is that once they take off the paper mache squeeze, they immediately destroy the um, basalt stele. It's made from volcanic stone basalt. Uh, but um, that is not exa exactly correct. What actually happens is Peterman, the guy we talked about earlier, the, the council, he wants to uh, make sure that, the, that he gets the stone. He paid for it. And so he enlists the help of the Ottoman Turkish government to help them go and get the stone with military personnel. Uh, well, this was a very stupid move on his part, as it would turn out, because there was no love lost between the Hamidi tribe and the Ottomans. And in fact, they, just in the previous year, had had a great conflict. And so in response to this, the Hamidi tribe, uh, they destroyed the stone. They heated it up to what was, was white hot, and then they poured cold water on it, breaking it into countless pieces. They then distributed the stone among um, the local Bedouin of the Hamidi tribe and put it into granaries, probably to serve as, uh, as, as talisman, uh, that is to keep away, um, keep away evil. And so with that, uh, it's just really mind-boggling. We had the random preservation of the most important Iron Age-related uh, historical document preserved for the better part, over, over 2,000 years, something like uh, 2,700 years from its uh, initial erect, uh, being, being uh, st stood up by Mesha to, 18, uh, to 1869 when it was destroyed. Um, and it's just really mind-boggling uh, to, to, to think about, but you should also think about that against the context of illicit excavations, things that happen now where people dig and destroy things. Uh, they've made it to the present, and yet there's always the threat of this destruction. Well, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. 
because there are ma major attempts to destroy uh, to recover it. The Germans, once it's destroyed, they're out. But the French and the British, uh, with two major figures, Charles Claremont Gonneau on the part of the French, this gets confusing because also he would later be employed by the British. Uh, again, all these all these mixing of 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 uh, of priorities, he would recover 38 pieces, uh, totaling something like 613 letters of the entire monument. Charles Warren, the famous, um, the famous British uh, engineer and, uh, and, and military officer of, uh, who was famous for Warren Shaft and so on, he would uncover a lot less, something like 18 pieces uh, with 59 letters. Uh, and they together with another, um, with another piece that was found later on, added up to like two thirds of the original inscription. So the whole ins uh, inscription had something like 1000 letters and they were able to get to something like 650 and then put that together. Now, if you just had 650 letters and all these pieces, it would be a puzzle that you could never put together. But remember, they have the puzzle box. Uh, they have the uh, paper mache squeeze. So they can then actually use that to recreate the steely. And that's exactly what Claremont Gano did in 1873. He uh, very brilliantly, in some ways, used the paper mache squeeze and then took different pieces of basalt and recarved it to match what was on the squeeze with the original pieces. And so if you've seen it in the, the Louvre, which is where it is today, or if you've seen recreations of it at different places, that all goes back uh, to what Charles Clermont Gonneau did in, uh, in 1873. And not only that, almost immediately, he produced a full uh, uh, text of the 34-line uh, inscription um, with, with a translation um, and had plans, but never got around to it, to producing the final, um, the, the, you know, the final translation, the, you know, the real main publication, which he never actually did. Um, and for many years, and this is really interesting as well, he, he had his recreation, uh, which is really kind of a, a Frankenstein uh, or Meshestein, if you will, um, in the Louvre. And right beside it, he has the, um, the, the, the paper mache squeeze. So if you were a scholar interested in epigraphy and paleography, ancient, ancient Moabite Hebrew, you could actually go and check the paper mache squeeze against what uh, Charles Clermont Gonneau did. And that's what for many years uh, what, what happened. Now, Skipping ahead, and we're going to actually read um, uh, our esteemed co-host translation of the Meshastili. Mary's going to read it in, in just a moment. Uh, but skipping ahead, I would just say that over time, the paper mache squeeze was removed and essentially lost uh, from, uh, it was no longer in public view and no longer really referenced. Now that's going to play an important role here in a minute when we talk about what are some possible readings in the Mesha Steely. And so this is kind of brings us to an end of the discover, what I've called the discovery, deliberations, destruction, recovery, recreation, and rediscovery of the Mesha Steely, which are all part of this uh, very interesting story. But then now we can think about, okay, now that we have this text, are there ways of looking at it that we can understand um, you know, new translations, new understandings of specific words. And that's what's really been done over the last 25 years or so, trying to understand in particular a few lines. And even in the last few, few, uh, few years, there have been some, some fascinating new developments, but I'll save that until after Mary uh, goes through her translation. 
Great. Yeah, no, um, that was awesome, Chris. I, I've read up on the discovery, but I think you've provided more details than I've ever heard before, especially names and things like that. So that was that was awesome. Before I read it, I, I think it's worthwhile to kind of quickly discuss what Moabite is, um, because I think uh, that's useful. So in the time of the Iron Age, we have a number of dialects that are all kind of related to one another. We have several dialects in the Transjordan, so Moabite is one of them. Um, there's also Ammonite, um, uh, presumably as well, Edomite. Um, and then I think, Chris, you've mentioned a couple times, Phoenician is up uh, up in kind of the area of modern-day Lebanon. Um, there's Ara Aramaic, which is also spoken, and we have texts from that time period. So we have a lot of these, and then, of course, Hebrew in um, the Cisjordan, but all of these are very much related, but they show distinctions. Um, so we can actually say, oh, wow, this is actually a distinct language. Um, one of the things that is most known or most distinctive about uh, Moabite is that they have, it follows Ar Aramaic in the form of the plural ending. So in Hebrew, you would get the plural ending im, I am, and then in Moabite, it's in, right, in. And so we, right away indicates that this is a different language. And when it was first published by Claire McGonneau, um, he right away indicated, hey, this is a new um, dialect and potentially a full-blown new language. We have two uh, main texts written in Moabite. So obviously the Meshastili is the most important one due to its length, but there's also another royal inscription um, that that provides some indication that, that this was um, a, a full-blown language, uh, quite distinct, and that there were a number of pieces of writing in the region. The other interesting fact about the text is... Um, I don't know how much to go into detail. Maybe I won't say this, but it's really important for the kind now of... Now you got to. No, no, now I'm not because it's too detailed on the grammar. But anyway, it really helps us understand vowel shifts, which sounds a little bit diff sounds a little bit stupid. But if you know anything about um, Semitic languages, we don't have vowels preserved. We just have the consonants. So we don't. We very much often don't know what it sounds like. But with the way that the Moabite description is used, they use something called matres, which are actually um, the use of the like yod and the vav to indicate vowels. And it really helps us say, oh, wow, there was actually a significant vowel shift that was going on. And so we can say that it was a distinct language. The other thing that's super cool, and then I, I'll, I'll kind of talk a little bit about the text after I read it, is that um, the text itself starts with the, the pronoun I, or anochi in Moabite. Um, and that word is very, very important and distinct because actually prior to the Iron Age, um, the Iron Age there, or sorry, the... the um, uh, the tribes and the people groups of the Southern Levant are basically just kind of serfs of these bigger powers. But all of a sudden in the Iron Age, wow, we have independent tribes who are asserting dominance. And so as Mesha jumps in right away, he says, I am Mesha, right? So he's saying he's asserting his dominance of his region. He's asserting himself as a king and that kind of thing. So it's it's quite distinct. So I'll, I'll kind of jump in. I'm going to read through Wait. it. Oh yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I, I, I meant to say two other things, uh, and I'll try to be brief. The first thing that's totally related to this that we don't have time to, to get into now, but you may have, have uh, heard about it in the news in, in recent, in recent uh, months, is that this is definitely related to the background of the Shapira affair and the so-called um, discovery, uh, discovery in air quotes, um, of the uh, original text of Deuteronomy by Moses Shapira, who was a major opponent of Claremont Gonneau. Um, and without spoiling the story, 
I would highly recommend reading up on uh, on up up on this. There's a uh, a great um, there's a great book written by Hanan Tagaya. I'm forgetting the uh, forgetting the name. I think it's called the Moses Scroll or something like that. We'll put it in the uh, in the description uh, where he describes the story I've just described, but also uh, the 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 this discovery essentially leading to one of the uh, most compelling but likely forgeries. Of, of the 19th century. Uh, so that's that's one thing. The other thing related to what Mary um, just indicated is that the date of this is important. Uh, the date of this is in the mid-9th century. And so we're at a time uh, where, for the most part, there has not been an imperial power in the southern Levant, uh, really since the New Kingdom Egypt, which um, left in the, in the 12th century at some point. And yet, there is beginning to become a power in the region with the Assyrians. We're within the same decade as Assyrian involvement in the reign of Shalmaneser III, who uh, is one of the great early uh, Assyrian kings, and he's already encountered the Israelites in the, in the, in the northern Levant, as well as Arameans um, in, in this vicinity, and perhaps even an early reference to the Moabites. And so perhaps there's uh, at least some connection uh, with this type of, of inscription and creating these types of, of royal uh, iconographic, um, or these royal uh, inscriptions in connection with the Assyrians. And so just, just to put this in, in, in the context, there's been an absence for centuries of major powers in the region. And within this middle of the ninth century, beginning in 853, and then punctuating throughout the 1840s, and perhaps when this was written in the 1840s or 1830s, there's all kinds of Assyrian involvement uh, with Shalmaneser III going up against such uh, neighbors of Mesha as Hazael of Aram Damascus, Jehu of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and others uh, in, in, in Tyre and Sidon. And so that's an important uh, element to kind of remember in the background. Now, related to that, they never go so far as to go beyond the Northern Kingdom. Shalmaneser III essentially uh, leaves in the 1840s and 1830s and doesn't come back into the area of Moab, but the threat was definitely there and it wouldn't return for another century, but it's an important feature to kind of remember in the background. No, it's helpful. I feel like we should talk about the Kirk Steely at some point to kind of give background on that, which would be useful. The The other thing, as you're talking, I was thinking it's useful to know. Now, whereas we know about Moab from the Bible, the biblical narrative, right? And we realize that they're, uh, <laughs> they're encountered in the Exodus and those kind of things. We also know from archaeology and from New Kingdom Egyptian texts that the Moabites were already a tribal unit by the end of the late Bronze Age. So they, there are texts in New Kingdom Egypt, uh, Egyptian texts that indicate that by even 1300, 1350, Moabite is a distinct group. They're interacting with Egypt. So, or sorry, Moab, not Moabite. Um, Moab is a distinct group and they're interacting with Egypt. And so think of like fast forward 500 years, um, they've been in the region, they're well established. They have pretty defined um, borders, all of those things. And so Mesha comes on and he's really asserting his dominance um, but they have a pretty good track record. 500 years in the region is not bad. Um, and pretty well-defined uh, nation uh, as is kind of they're defining themselves. So anyway. Yeah, and I would I would just add to that, and really I'll, I'll let you do a translation after this. <laughs> like but it's, it's really, it's fascinating you mentioned that because guess how much late Bronze Age remains there are at Tel Dibon? So None. little, yep. None. They went uh, to look for them and then there they were not there. So it's so tricky. And, and yet the site <laughs> is mentioned by Ramses II. And, yep. and so we have 
clear evidence of Moabites in New Kingdom Egypt in the 13th century and no uh, archaeological evidence in cities, which is another point in the favor of the, the recent suggestion by Erez ben Yosef that there exists an architectural bias in archaeology where we, where we essentially um, prioritize architecture uh, over historical texts uh, or even over just any text. Um, as, as being the main core evidence for, um, uh, for a kingdom. Whereas here we have a clear um, historical text, you know, it's mentioned in, in, in lists of Ramses II and others in the area of Moab, it mentions Deban by name, and there's no archaeological evidence at Deban of this, of this period. And so that's just another feature to kind of keep in the background. Uh, we could point to the things we talked about with the Bini Hamidi and such, but we could also see that this is the kind of environment that the Israelites uh, may have encountered when they came into this vicinity um, in, in around the same time frame as is re reflected in uh, the book of the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay, now really, let's okay, let's read it. I should read it. <clears throat> Should we say anything else? No, let's read it. Okay. So um, for those of you who do know Moabite, you can criticize all of the errors that I may or may not make. Um, and so take this as with a grain of salt. Beginning now. I am Mesha, son of Kimoshiat, king of Moab, the Dibonite. My father ruled over Moab 30 years, and I ruled after my father. I made this high place for Kimosh in Karcho, a high place of salvation, because he delivered me from all the kings, and because he caused me to look down upon each one who hates me, namely Omri, the king of Israel. He oppressed Moab for many years, because Kimosh was angry with this land, or with his land. His son succeeded him, and he also said, I will oppress Moab. In my days, he said thus, but I looked upon him and upon his house and Israel has perished, perished forever. Omri has had taken possession of the whole land of Medaba. He dwelt in it in his days and half of the days of his son, 40 years. But Chemosh restored it in my days and I built Baal Meon and I made the reservoir and I built Kiryatain, the man... Um, Kiriatine, period. <laughs> the men of Gad were dwelling in the land of Ataroth from forever, and the king of Israel built for himself Ataroth. And I did battle with the city, and I seized and I killed all of the people. The city was a possession of Chemosh and Moab, and I carried away from there the altar of David. And I dragged it before Chemosh and Kiriot, and I settled it in the men uh, settled it in the men of Sharon, and the men of, and then we have a broken line and it gets filled in with something else, but, and Maharot. Chemosh said to me, go, take Nebo against Israel. Thus, I went by night, and I did battle with it from the crack of dawn until noon, and I seized it, and I killed everything, 7,000 men, boys, women, and girls, and maidens. For to Ashtaroth Chemosh, I dedicated it, and I took from there the vessels of uh, potentially Yahweh, yod heh vav -Heh, and I dragged them before Chemosh. The king of Israel had built Yahas, and he dwelt in it while fighting with me, and Chemosh drove him out before me, and I took from Moab 200 men, all his captains, and I brought them into Yahas, and I seized it. In order to add it to Daibon, I built in Karcho the wall, the wall of the forest and the walls of the Acropolis. I built its two gates and built its towers. I built the house of the king and I made enclosure walls of the reservoir for water in the midst of the city, for a cistern did not exist in the middle of the city of Karcho. 
Now I said to all of the people, make for yourselves each man a cistern in his house. And I hewed pits for Karcho with the prisoners of Israel. I built Aroer, and I made the highway in Arnon. I built Beit Bamot because it was a ruin, and I built Bezer because it was a ruin. By means of the armed men of Dibon, for all of Dibon was a a subservient band. And I ruled over hundreds in the cities, which I added to the land. And I built the house of Medaba and the house of Diblatain and the house of Baalmeon. And I carried there my shepherds to shepherd the flocks of the land and Horonen. And I caused to dwell in the house of David in it when uh, he did battle with me. And Chemosh said to me, go down, do battle with Horonen. So I went down and I did battle with the city and Chemosh returned it in my days and I went up from there. And then the following lines are broken. And so we sort of end there. It's amazing. Like um, It's an amazing inscription. Nicely done. Nicely done. Um, wow. Um, even reading it through again, you are just so struck by so many things that you can connect with um, the biblical world. Um, because we talked about it a while back, one of the things that in, in hearing you read it through this time, I was really struck by is notice how he brags about the walls that he built and the water system he makes. Um, that to me sounds a lot like the Milo, the Milo in Jerusalem. Um, and, and just so what we have is, is so much of the, the genre of, of, of royal literature um, that we have from this period that, that has some similarities with what we would say in, in Assyria, but is much closer to what we actually read in the Book of Kings. And so in some ways, if we think about the Meshistili, it's probably closest to not necessarily the Book of Kings, but the cited books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. Uh, or Israel. It's these these features that that show up again and again. I have a a lot to, uh, to, to that we can, that we can point out. What do you have some Do you have some things, Mary? That I I don't want to interrupt the end of your translation. But what are some things that you that really jump out at you in this thing? Um, it's I, that really jump out at me. Uh, well, number one is the length. So any uh, philologist will know that if you get a couple lines, you get really excited. But this thing is like a veritable. Um, a dictionary for us in the middle, those of us who study ancient texts. Um, it just provides so much evidence just in terms, not only in terms of um, location names, right, toponyms, but also just in terms of verbs, nouns, like structures, syntax, like ver vocalization, like everything. It just provides so much data, especially because it's so old, um, potentially around 850, 840, right? Um, the other thing that I think is just so interesting is his use of the first person, which I realize may be less so exciting for some, but this is just kind of a little bit unheard of, right? It's, it's um, up, especially for the populations of the Southern Levant. Um, this is really the first time where they're able to actually express themselves this way, right? He is fully bragging. And again, you just hear in, it, it's, it's kind of a refrain. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. I built this and I did this and I offered it to my God and I dragged it here and I took it away. And right. So he's fully bragging about himself and about his exploits. Um, we, we, this, this will feel very familiar if you have read things like the Sennacherib prison prism, because this is kind of how Sennacherib talks about his own exploits. And here we find, and obviously that's a little bit later, but here we find Mesha doing the same. And so it's actually uh, jumping up there. The, the other thing that, of course, is, is interesting is um, sort of the divine power struggle that, that occurs. So he's very much posing his own 
deity, Kemosh, against the deities of the neighboring um, populations, in this case, Israel. And why this is important is that each one of the tribal groups in the Southern Levant all had, um, in other words, they, they absolutely were polytheistic. So they had a number of gods in their pantheon, um, but each one of them would have had their own kind of specific deity. Um, and so for Moab, that god was Kemosh. And so when um, Mesha was able to overtake um, Israel or other groups, it was seen as a divine battle and that his God actually handed it over to them. And we see this in the biblical narrative when they say, hey, look, if you want it, have your God give it to you, right? We see this kind of again and again. And so the Israelites kind of mocking back um, on this trope. So those are kind of the few the few things that, um, obviously the other one that's such a treasure trove in this one is the, the list of toponyms. And so we don't get that very often. Um, and this we can really map against. So you can map it against uh, passages like Numbers 22 and, and several others that kind of walk us through the, t the toponyms and the, uh, the geography of the Transjordan. This one is very important for that in terms of what was what was in the control of Moab versus Israel, when, et cetera. Um, the very last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll let you jump in because I know you've got quite a bit out of this, is um, the reference to kind of past time. Um, so not only is Mesha indicating the things that he did real time um, in the eight, you know, the 850s or whatever, um, but prior to that, he's saying, hey, in times past, the men of Gad had done this. And this very much echoes the biblical narrative, right? So we think about, hey, um, New Kingdom Egyptian text indicates that Moabite, the Moabite clans, tribes, what have you, were already in the Transjordan. They're controlling that. They are interacting with the men of Gad, who are also settling in the region. And this is this is there. So there was some historic knowledge um, from several hundred years prior um, that this is an ongoing battle between uh, Israel and Moab, right? So that you have not only the you know in his times past the men of Gad, but then you also have the house of David, and it, it kind of moves forward to the modern time. And so there's continual conflict going on. And that, I mean, the conflict between the Transjordan and the Cisjordan goes all the way into, uh, you know, the second temple period. I mean, it just continues on and on and on. So you can see that kind of for 500 years, they've been warring against one another. So those are kind of the biggest things that struck, that struck me in reading. No, that's, again, that's, that's great. I, I had one question for you and you don't have to comment on it if you don't have an opinion but I, i've always been intrigued by the ashtar kimosh or atar kimosh however you and it's possible uh connections with a similar deity i think is mentioned somewhat often i know it's mentioned in the baal cycle um as the uh the guy who tries to take baal's uh seat in the uh, after baal is in um is in the underworld um, do you, do you have, do you have any, is this, this seems to be a male deity or is it a female deity? Cause it could also be a star could be, um, in any case, I, it's, it's a, it's an interesting compound. And I always, whenever I, whenever I talk to someone who knows something about the Mishastili uh, and oftentimes the question is, uh, is well, what do you think about this? They say, I don't know. <laughs> and that's okay too. But do you have any thoughts about, uh, any thoughts about it? Um, I have so many thoughts. No, I, I can get, I can give you kind of the, the, I've done a, some reading on it. So I can give you kind of what I know of it. I don't have a strong, I don't have any skin in the game of pantheons, but, um, yeah. So, um, and I'm just going to kind of a couple things here. So, um, in Ugaritic and South Arabian dialects, we actually see Ashtar being now Ashtar is different than, um, there's multiple God names that sound similar. So Ashtar is a god, not a goddess. So we kind of think right away like, oh, 
Astarte, right? But no, this is actually a god. Um, Ashar is associated with morning and evening, um, and it, and also the morning and evening star in Akkadian. So it's it's a pretty well-known deity, so it's not something new to Moabite. Um, it's also a, associated with irrigation in South Arabia, which uh, is kind of interesting. Um, and in the Baal cycle, um, it, Ashtar is linked to the flow of water. So we see sort of morning and evening, the flow of water. Now, this kind of uh, uh, pairing with Kemosh is, is a very common one. Not the pairing of those two, but the pairing of deities into a single deity or the merger um, is actually quite common. So um, the fusion of these two deities possibly indicates that this was a divine couple, right? That Ashtar was previously a god, became a goddess, and then actually merged uh, with Kemosh to create a couple. So uh, double divine names are really common in, in Ugaritic, and so that's that's a possible connection there, especially since Ashtar was so popular there. There are other ones. There's like in Phoenician, there's the, divini the divinity uh, Milkishtart. Um, we get in a number of the Phoenician. So it seems that Ashtar actually... Uh, begins to kind of merge with several other local deities because it was such a popular, uh, let's say it this way, because Ashtar was so popular within the ancient Near East, it's in Akkadian, it's in Phoenicia, it's in Ugarit, it's in, right, it's in South Arabia, and it's everywhere, it begins to get paired with the local deities um, in this kind of uh, couple divine form. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else um, no, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, well done. Yeah. I, I, I've always been, been fascinated by it. I think just a, a, a clarification, you, you mentioned it, but the beginning of the, the, the word we have an English translation, um, is with an ion instead of an olive, I believe, which is the difference between Asherah and Astarte or Astarote. They're, they have a different, so people just have a, you know, a different understanding of these two goddesses. It, now, it actually has a different, another different letter, which is the, it, in Hebrew, it's the same, it's the she, um, but mm -hmm. in Ugaritic, it's actually a th. So the historic, the historic form would have been athtart. <laughs> or right, right. For the, for, instead astartu. of the sheen, right. Yeah, the, yep. the th sound gets used mm -hmm. in different ways, but anyway. So we know that they're for sure different, and they would have sounded different. Now they sound the same, but they would have sounded sure. very different. Very interesting. Okay, so let me let me do this. There's so much we can talk about. We can't talk about it all, but let me let me start with contemporary. The most obvious connection between the Mesha Stele and the Bible is Mesha himself. Mesha is mentioned in a long section in Second Kings chapter three, uh, in which we have the son of uh, a son of Ahab, uh, Joram, or Jehoram, uh, teaming up with Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and going up against Mesha because he rebels after the death of Ahab. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. And it talks about how uh, before that, Mesha had offered so much tribute. And guess what's in that tribute? Lots of sheep, lots of goats. The things that are described in, the, in this text. And so over the course of 2 Kings 3, we have essentially Israel and Judah putting down this rebellion and returning Moab back to its submission. We also have um, a, a perhaps parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 20. Um, this passage is famous because we have a battle in which people sing and destroy the enemy um, at this place called uh, the Valley of Blessing, uh, where Jehoshaphat leads the, the warriors against Moab and Ammon and this other entity called the Meunites. Uh, we're not sure if this is directly related to Mesha, he's not mentioned, but it speaks to conflict between 
um, Israel or Judah and Moab precisely during this time period, time period in the in, in the ninth uh, in the ninth century. And so I would say, just in general, there's a very nice correlation between what we see happening in the the, the politics of the mid ninth century, as described in the biblical text, particularly Second Kings chapter three. And what we see in uh, the Mesha, uh, the Mesha Stele. The second is is related to that is chronology. Um, this is the first time we have a reference to uh, Omri, although right after this he gets mentioned uh, a number of times in uh, Assyrian uh, Assyrian texts. And it's really interesting that he doesn't even mention the name of Omri's son. It says, uh, "I was oppressed many days in the in, in his son who replaces him." Uh, well, this is uh, this is Ahab. We know uh, he's a, a popular character uh, in the Bible. Uh, we also have in this a, a reference to what seems to be a kind of symbolic use of the number forty, uh, because if you look at the, uh, the the dates of the the reign of uh, of Omri and Ahab, uh, Omri only reigned for something like twelve years. Ahab reigned for something like 20 years or 21 years or so. And so if you put those together, it's, it's, it's a lot less than, than 40 years. And so this seems to also fit in with this larger idea within the Bible that the, the year 40, the number 40 uh, years is a kind of generation. Now, that doesn't always mean that, that a king can't reign 40 years. Uh, it's very clear, in my opinion, that Joash definitely reigned 40 years because he was king when he was eight, and he had to have reigned 40 years to fit the chronology. But it's a kind of sign that that fits in nicely with that. Now, the other part that, that Mary mentioned is, is about the toponyms. Uh, we can point to a number of very interesting connections with the toponyms. Almost every single name in this inscription appears in the Bible. The only two that do not appear in the Bible are the men of Sharon and the men of Maharot. Uh, which have to be somewhere between uh, Debon and Medeba in, in central Transjordan. I have some ideas about those, but we won't get into them. All of the rest, and there's a lot of them, are mentioned in the Bible, and they're mentioned primarily in two main texts. They're mentioned in the prophets, especially Isaiah, and especially in the book of Numbers. Uh, and, and in Numbers uh, 34, for instance, and in the tribal allotments of Reuben and Gad, uh, who, by the way, are, as Mary indicated, are mentioned in this text. We have uh, the only reference outside of the Bible to the tribe of Gad in, uh, in this text. And so the comparison between what we have in the tribal allotments of Reuben and Gad in Numbers, and then also the parallel version of this in uh, Joshua chapter uh, 13, are, are very, uh, very clear. Um, the, 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 the cities are the same, and many of them have been identified with absolute certainty. Some of the names have come down to us today. Medeba is still Medeba. Nebo is still Nebo. Uh, Heshbon, which is a little bit north here, is still Heshbon, Debon, and so on. Now, uh, one of the ones that is very fascinating is the site of Atarot. Atarot, which is to the northwest of Dibon, has been excavated and recently published. They found a destroyed temple, um, which could actually be the very temple that is described by, uh, by Mesha in this, um, in this inscription, um, that he spends so much uh, time uh, d d describing in the area of, uh, of Atarot. Um, and so there's a there's an inscription there as well as a uh, as well as a, as well as a temple. Um, another important um, aspect of this is the the reference to the harem or the ban 
that uh, Mesha places upon uh, upon the city that, that's inhabited by Israelites, by the Gadites. It fits very closely with what we see in particular in the book of Joshua uh, with the cities of Jericho and Ai and, of course, Hatzor, that it's a dedicated uh, site that is essentially destroyed for the, for the deity. Now, without getting into the uh, ethics and all that in, in involved, which is a much-discussed topic, the main point is to see that there is a, a real uh, similarity uh, between, those, uh, between those two points. Now, lastly, one of the most interesting things about, this, um, uh, about the Meshastili uh, is, of course, the references to David. Uh, this, along with um, the discovery of the Tel Dan stele, give us two, uh, two texts, roughly from the same time period, mid-9th century, that both mention the name David. Now, to, to, understand, to understand this, we need to understand that this is a fairly new discussion. Um, now, it's fairly new in, in the sense that the question of David's existence or David's historicity as described in the Bible became very much at the forefront of scholarship in the late 80s and in the early 90s, um, particularly driven by um, certain parts of European scholarship, but also uh, such books as the, uh, the Bible Unearthed by Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberman and another book called David and Solomon. And so, for one, we have um, the discovery of a um, of the Tel Dan stele, which would come in three parts in the middle of the 90s and very clearly uh, indicate the name House of David. And we'll talk about that probably on another episode. But in the context, it is a reference to the dynastic house. It's not talking about David's, um, uh, David's own residence. It's a dynastic house. In other words, the kingdom of Judah. And so it refers to a king of Judah, probably uh, the king Ahaziah, uh, who was killed by either Jehu or Hazael, or uh, claimed by both, who is king of Beit David, of the house of Judah. And that hit right in the, at the height of this debate uh, about the historicity of David, uh, indicating that David's name had lived on some 130 plus years after his death as the name of the kingdom, and not just as the name that, that they called themselves, the name that enemies called them as the house of, uh, as the house of David. And what, what happened right in this time frame as well is that we have, if we go back to our history of research, we have the famed uh, scholar Andre Lemaire taking a closer look at the squeeze of the Mesha Stele. In 1994, he looked closely at the paper mache squeeze and suggested that in the line that Mary read about Horonaim, which is mentioned in Isaiah, this is a site to the south of Kir or Kir Hareshet in, in uh, southern Moab, um, that, that, that we have the name Beit David, uh, that it appears there. Now, immediately, uh, there was all kinds of um, responses to this, but in general, many people, because of the reference in the Tel Dan stele, uh, accepted this as, as at least a possibility. Uh, Anson Rainey would even suggest that another reference to, to, David, uh, to David is mentioned earlier in the inscription about an altar hearth, uh, which I would say is less definite than uh, the one in line 31, but still a possibility. Now, within the same month, in 2019, pre-pandemic days, there were two publications. 
One came out in uh, the esteemed journal of Tel Aviv University uh, by uh, Israel Finkelstein, Nadav Naaman, and Thomas Romer, arguing that the line that uh, that uh, Andre Lemaire had suggested said Beit David, they suggested that it was Balak. Uh, now you might say, who's Balak? Well, that's that's the name that's uh, the bad guy in Indiana Jones. Uh, part one, uh, the Balak, uh, uh, but he's but that's not the same guy. Balak or Balak is the king of Moab in connection with uh, the Book of Numbers. He is the one who hires out Balaam, uh, this prophet for hire, to curse Israel. Now we know how that story goes, but they argued that uh, really that's a reflective of the ninth century reality uh, that Balak was a king right around this time frame and. Uh, Mesha is uh, referring to him, which I might add is uh, really a um, quite an argument to make. <laughs> I mean that that not only do you, do you collapse much of biblical history, but that you're saying that they are from the same time frame is 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 quite quite an interesting, uh, and I would uh, really disagree with that suggestion. But that was made um, in um, and I think in the spring or summer of 2019. And as I said, in the same month we have the publication of another article on the Meshastili, this by Andre Lemaire's student, uh, Michael Langlois, uh, who used these various uh, imaging techniques on the paper mache squeeze and really showed, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but almost beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the best um, reading for it is actually, uh, is actually Beit David. And so if you compare the, uh, the transcription that we have from the, the papier-mâché squeeze uh, published in 2019 to what we see in the Tel Dan Steely, it's pretty clear that it says House of David. Now what this means then is we then have two 9th century texts, uh, one from the Mesha Steely from an enemy, this would be the Moabites, and then another from the Arameans of Damascus, both referring to the kingdom of Judah, uh, which was, you know, reigning from Jerusalem uh, under the, the title House of David, which would fit very um, nicely with an understanding of the, the historicity, not only of the, the person of David, but that he had some uh, big impact that would be remembered some century uh, and a half almost uh, after, his, uh, after his life. And so this really sticks in the, um, the crawl of the reconstructions that want to say, um, King David is no, is no more historical than um, than King Arthur, which, by the way, some people think King Arthur is historical. Um, but but in any case, the, the point is is that there's uh, good extra biblical evidence for the existence of David um, in a historical uh, in a historical setting. Now, on the other hand, given the things that we've talked about, um, I, I I think that one of the ways that we can overcorrect in, in using the word empire when we talk about uh, David and Solomon, uh, because really what we may have in the person of David um, is not unlike what we see in the Meshastili. Now, it might be on a, a, a bigger scale, um, but what David does, according to what we read in um, particularly the books of 2 Samuel, chapter 8, chapter 10, and so on, are, are local conflicts 
against um, relatively equal uh, nation states or, or groups, such as different groups of the Arameans, Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites, and so on, whom he defeats. And once he defeats, he brings in uh, new military personnel, he marries into them, uh, and then over time this develops into a kind of uh, tribe-based kingdom uh, that doesn't last very long. Uh, and only lasts for the better part of maybe 60, 70 years before it falls in on itself. Now, if we talk about it from a biblical perspective, we can say, well, it's Solomon's sin, and that's part of the whole discussion. But if we're talking about it strictly from a political or historical perspective and looking at it from the bigger lens, we can see and compare it to, again, what we see in the Meshastili and what we see happening at different points in the Iron Age. Another point of comparison is with Hazael. For a brief moment of some 40, 50 years, he's able to lay claim to much of the Levant and then loses it fairly quickly as uh, the situation changes. And so it's better to kind of find ourselves when we're talking about the United Kingdom between these two um, you know, polar extremes. Empire is not a word I'd use, uh, but also I wouldn't say that... Uh, King David and Solomon are no more historical than uh, King Arthur. And one of the main pieces of evidence in favor of this is the, um, is the description of, or the inscription that we have of the, of the Mesha Stele. That is a great <laughs> analysis of the, of the data that we have for David. I, I, would, I would also say um, the root, like let's just talk about it from philo philological perspective. Um, the root, it occurs in line 12. And then again, as you mentioned at the end of the inscription, Dalit Vav Dalit is like non-existent in Semitic languages. It's very, very rare. Um, and so it can't be lots of other things. Like if it was something kind of, hey, that could be a verb, it could be another noun, it's a common term, whatever, right? Um, but this is not that, right? It's actually very, very specific. And so that's why if any, there's been, there's been lots of ways uh, of explaining away those two things, but they're ultimately not all that successful because frankly, it just doesn't occur very often. And so you have to kind of jump through philological hoops to make it something different. And I think if, if, if it wasn't attached to this kind of, a uh, very flash, you know, the, uh, this flashpoint around the biblical narrative, I think no scholar would have any problem just reading it as it is, at least from a philological perspective, right? Um, so if I detach myself from anything related to the Bible, you just read it for what it is, which is Dalit, Bab Dalit. It has to be some form of Dod, David, etc. And so um, anyway, just kind of throwing that out there, I think it is uh, just so rare that that I think we have to kind of call it what it is. So... Anyway. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, if if it was discovered some, if both of these studies were to happen even a decade before, uh, I, I doubt you would have any pushback against uh, the reading uh, David. In fact, um, Kenneth Kitchen even suggests that we may have the name Heights of David in the uh, Shishak city lists as one of the places that was destroyed. Um, uh, in, in Shishak's campaign in, in 925 or 926 BC. So there could be even be a third, and this one would actually be contemporary. Now that one is not um, 100% take it to the bank, uh, but it, it makes sense given what we know of uh, what's happening in the period, what we think we know, and, and, and make, a reconstruction with, uh, make a reconstruction with this period. So uh, in any case, uh, what, we've, what we've done is make our way through the uh, Mesha Stele, We've attempted um, 
at, at least to try and understand it against its own context, as Mesha um, really is this, uh, this, this window into the world of Moab that we don't know anything about uh, outside of the Bible. So it's important in of itself to understand the history of Moab. Uh, but it's offered us so much insight into, we could say, from the time period of the conquest down through the period of the judges with references and connections with such people as Jephthah uh, to the United Kingdom with uh, particularly David's name, uh, especially uh, the contemporary realities of the ninth century, which we see almost as in parallel to what we see in 2 Kings 3 and perhaps uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, we see so much uh, parallels with toponyms. Uh, from the book of Numbers, but also uh, some passages passages in Isaiah, all of which indicate that this uh, will remain. Uh, of course, it would be great if we found something better, uh, but it would it remains uh, one of the most important texts um, after its discovery. And so I would say, at the end, its importance is just as interesting as its discovery. And its discovery is really interesting. Well, thanks, Chris. I think this was a great, great episode. Next time, we're going to journey somewhere else in the ancient world. So join us as we kind of uh, tackle some of the most popular uh, texts of the ancient world. And, and we'll even take requests. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, you, if, you want, if you have an idea for what text you want to tackle, want us to tackle, uh, send us a comment. Yeah. Or if you have questions about this, whether it's the language or the, the discovery, et cetera, we're happy to kind of engage on that. So, all right. Well, thanks. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.